Alex Marlowe, Editor-in-Chief of Breitbart News, and this is the Breitbart News Daily Podcast. On today's show, we begin with Donald Trump's mockery of Ron DeSantis over the weekend, just days before the election. Is Trump sending his best? We break it down. Then we cover some key political developments, including some disturbing John Fetterman audio and much more. We have three candidates on the show for you today. Leora Levy, who's running against Richard Blumenthal in Connecticut. It's a long shot, but she is polling much closer than you might expect. Tom Barrett is in a dogfight with Democrat star Alyssa Slotkin in Michigan's 7th District, which is becoming the most expensive congressional race in the country. And Wesley Hunt, Republican nominee in the new Texas 38th District, is running well ahead in his race, but he could be a big star in the making, so it's fun to get to know him as well. These are all strong candidates in sort of different flavored races, but don't take my word for it. Let's hear from all of them starting right now. I will start with the biggest news item of the day in terms of conversation and traffic, etc. at Breitbart. Let's play cut three. This is the former president of the United States. But we have the best poll numbers. Where are they? Are they putting them up on the screen? I think so. Put them up. Look. Yeah, we're putting them up. We're winning, we're winning big, big, big in the Republican Party for the nomination like nobody's ever seen before. Let's see, there it is, Trump at 71, Rhonda Sanctimonious at 10%, Mike Pence at 7, oh, Mike's doing better than I thought. Liz Cheney, there's no way she's at 4%. There's no way. Good pause. So, Rhonda Sanctimonious. So the governor of Florida, who I think has inspired more Republicans than just about any person, um, and more non-Republicans to, uh, I think, move towards conservative direction, has been one of the most effective governors in the country, if not the most effective over the last two years. And uh, he gets roused by Trump three days before the election. I would like for those of you who think that Trump does nothing wrong to explain this to me. It is a very peculiar thing to me that on the brink of a historic election where it would be a good a good moment for everyone to kind of get on the same page that uh, we get a new nickname and it is a nickname that I don't know if it's going to stick I don't know if that one's going to stick uh, I have to tell you when this came out uh, it was one where my entire inbox immediately flooded with people confused, angered. Why Why is this happening? Why is he taking shots at the most popular Republican governor right now? So I don't know if we're going to get our dream ticket. I don't know if the dream ticket's going to be in the cards. The one thing that I thought was positive about this comment, though, from President Trump was that maybe we'll get a primary. I'm, I'm deeply concerned that we're not going to have a primary race. And I think that primaries are good because I think they sharpen the candidates. I think the uh, sometimes a hard-fought primary leads to an election victory. Um, Barack Obama had a harder primary versus Hillary Clinton than John McCain had versus the people who were running in um, the Republican primary in 2008. And then Obama won handily in the general. I think in... Um, 2016, the fact that there was so much attention drama on the Republican side versus Democrat side favored Trump, ultimately. So if Trump is right and the polls are what they are and he's 70% to win the nomination, which is 
um, you know, we're at 70%, which would put him at over 100% to win the nomination, literally over 100. I think that'll be a shame because I think Trump is going to be running well behind any Democrat in the general election to start things off. Not to say he can't win. Of course he can win. And the Democrats are doing such a terrible job. Biden will be a billion years old, and Biden is definitely the most likely to be the nominee at this point. And um, so it's not that Trump couldn't win a general, but he's going to be running behind once he gets nominated. So if there's nothing to test his skills and to get people excited about Republican politics, it's just a coronation. I don't know if that's a great thing. But to attack the most popular Republican governor, arguably, three days before an election with a dorky nickname was a surprise. Let's put it this way. That was a surprise. Uh, you know, it's also uh, the interesting about it is that Trump uh, was rumored to, they're already talking about when he's going to announce he's going to run for president. And they're talking about a week from today as a potential announcement. Um, There's a rumor that he was considering announcing uh, at this Oz Mastriano rally in Pennsylvania on Saturday. So he was thinking of announcing a couple days before the election. I think he has had good instincts not to announce too early because that would, I think, change the shape of how the midterms are shaping up. The midterms are shaping up in such a way that it really is a unifying moment for anyone who's anti-woke, not just even Republicans. seems like independents, tons of new voters like minority voters, like Hispanics, breaking towards Republicans, new districts opening up that Republicans are favored in. It just seems like an across the board, um, I mean, Republicans could run the table. So to make the election just about Trump himself would have not been good for anyone, including Trump. So he was able to resist that mostly. But now it seems like at the very end, there was some discussion of whether or not he was going to announce early. And I was thinking, well, that's divisive. That's media rumors. And then um, Trump is not going to announce now. And this is just the media trying to make the midterms about Trump, because that's been one of the strategies of the, of the institutional left. And that's what I thought last week when I heard about these rumors that he's going to announce. And then I'm watching the rally and now he's making fun of Ron DeSantis. He's doing his insult comedy routine against Ron DeSantis of all people. And everything I've told you guys and that I've heard is that DeSantis, even though a lot of people like for him to run, I've seen no evidence that he's planning on running against Trump this time. So uh, Trump is also smart enough to know he could change his mind in a heartbeat. And then, um, you know, it would be a big race. It would be a good race. But that was pretty stunning, I have to say. And then uh, clearly overwhelming the conversation just days before the election. And that is what will happen if Trump is president again, if he's a nominee. There will be a ton of time spent on talking about whatever Trump does to get attention. Bill O'Reilly said this, and Bill O'Reilly is a friend of Trump's, that he tries to get attention, he's addicted to it, and it hurts him. Now, I was anticipating when I looked down the comments at Breitbart that it was going to be, you know, 60-40 um, saying, why is Trump doing this? And maybe 40% thinking, well, DeSantis cut this ad and it was a little sanctimonious. So Trump kind of had a point and he's just goofing around and Trump's a fun guy. But it really wasn't that. It was a very overwhelming that I saw that um, uh, at least saying, why, why? 
even if it's not anger, and I'm not angry about it, it doesn't, it's not that big of a deal, to be honest. So let the record show it's not that big of a deal at this point. I just found it curious and undisciplined. And if it was disciplined, if it was on purpose, then that's an interesting thing too. If that really was, if it was like a calculated thing, this would be a good thing to do, throw some shade at a super popular governor who's on the ballot in two days. And again, so there, I'm opening the show five minutes. I'm, uh, you know, eight, 10 minutes in. And what are we talking about? One other thing for 2024, Tom Cotton said he won't run, which is interesting to me having read his book. Um, his book, which is out now and um, is doing very well on the charts and something I wholeheartedly recommend, Only the Strong. I had a terrific interview with him last week on. It's also available on the podcast. Still available on demand, those of you who are uh, SXM app users. And it is the most substantial foreign policy book by a conservative that is a, a politician that I've ever read for sure in one of the most substantial that I've ever read period uh, and it did read like someone who is carving out a specific na- niche to run for even higher office than the Senate so I was reading and I was thinking this seems like he's laying out some policies that he would like to apply from the executive branch that was, it did cross my mind. It's not the core of the book. The core of the book is a history of how the last foreign policies are terrible. But I will say that you do get reading through the lines, especially if you read his other book, Sacred Duty, which is another good book, but is very personal about his experience in the war and some, some war history as well, but doesn't come off as political in the slightest. This came off as much more political to me, but in a, in a good way for me. But it did make me think this guy's po- uh putting himself in the primary conversation. But then he says he's not going to run. Maybe he's thinking, you know, I'm sure he'd be open to vice presidential nominee, but he's in a deep red state, which makes that complicated. So that's another thing that's interesting that that came out over the weekend. Um, We'll ask the senator about it next time he's on, which I'm sure won't be too far away, but a, a interesting thing. And it makes you think at this point, if Trump announces then there's going to be huge pressure on people to say they're not going to run. Um, And there'll be a lot of pressure because they know they're going to be in line for insult attacks by Trump, which are typically effective. They are. They typically work. And again, the race is going to start almost immediately for 2024, which I am excited about. I mean, I think that is fun just from the uh, following it like a sporting event. So if, I mean, these guys have got a few months to decide if they're going to be in or not. And uh, any of the top contenders are going to be asked point blank, are you in or not? And it's awkward to lie about it if you've made up your mind. So I I guess it makes sense to come clean. But I was a little surprised by that given how um, solid his book was. Because it did give me some hope. Again, another good person to maybe get some ideas out there in a primary, even if you end up supporting Trump. And I'm a very uh, not... Um, I'm not close-minded to supporting Trump in a primary. Now, it's not for me a lock like it was in 2016 where, you know, if I if I had created a candidate, um, a, a Mr. Potato Head candidate where I'd assembled the potato head on my own, it would be exactly Donald Trump. Every position, every joke, every attack on the media, I loved it all. I mean, every moment of it pretty much. 
even the Access Hollywood tape was kind of fun because I thought that it would not make a difference. And I got to tell people that, and that was a, a fun um, a couple of weeks conversation at that point. But it's not going to be the same for me this time. If there was a primary, there might not be one. All right, 866-95-PATRIOT, that's the number. Uh, let's talk about some election stuff. Um, this was an interesting one because the blame game is already beginning on the Democrat side. Here's a CNN panel. Now, CNN actually did a fact check of Joe Biden over the weekend. They're, they're trying to pivot and their ratings are suffering from it. So they've carved out this identity as a left-wing brand for the last six or seven years. And now they're trying to act sort of neutral. It's not going to work for them as we've discussed numerous times on the show. Um, but let's play cut two. This is interesting. This is Hillary Rosen, who's a Democrat strategist, pretty famous, I think tied mostly to Clinton world. Go ahead. Hillary, you have a different take maybe than Bakari on Democrats. Yeah, I mean, I, I think as, Mark speaking is Speaking as right. a Democrat. Um, I'm, a, I'm a loyal Democrat, but I am not happy. I just think that we are, you know, we did not listen to voters in this election, and I think we're going to have a bad night. And, you know, this conversation's not going to have much impact on Tuesday, but I hope it has an impact going forward. Because when voters tell you over and over and over again that they care mostly about the economy, listen to them. Stop talking about democracy being at stake. Democracy is at stake because people are fighting so much about what elections mean. I mean, voters have told us what they wanted to hear, and I don't think Democrats have really delivered right, I, this cycle. I, right. Well, they can't talk about the economy because they stink at managing it. Nearly everything Joe Biden has done has been inflationary. Almost every one of his policies, including the Inflation Reduction Act, is inflationary. And now we have massive inflation. Um, and then we've also got the fact that there's rampant crime where people are openly discussing how they don't feel safe in New York City or in places like that, which has put literally New York in play. I had a clip um, at Breitbart over the weekend. We don't have it here. I don't really need to play it. But Stephanie Rule, who is a left wing person on uh, CNBC where MSNBC, one the other, one the NBC networks. And it is much better than your average left winger because she seems to at least have some authenticity to her. Um, and she had Kathy Hochul on and was saying flat out, we don't feel safe here. This is a committed Democrat voter, but one who has got a um, independent streak and is a smart person. And she said flat out, well, we don't feel safe. So those are the main things. And it's so obvious to me that talking about democracy being at stake, especially when we live in a republic, and the solution to democracy, as laid out by Joe Biden, is for everyone to vote exactly like the leader of the country wants. I mean, it is literally the key to saving democracy, according to Joe Biden, is uh, light authoritarianism, meaning he commands you to vote the way he wants. That's how you save democracy. I mean, it never makes sense. It was never going to be a great argument. I mean, talking a little bit about how uh, Trump ratches up ratchets up the division and talking about some of the election conspiracies that are still out there from 2020. Yeah, that's something, it's a, but it's so small. It's such a small part of what uh, Americans are talking about right now. Those who aren't obsessed with cable news, what Americans are talking about right now are, um, uh, the, the, first of all, inflation, in the economy, second of all, crime, third of all, immigration and fentanyl and drugs. And then fourth is the candidates themselves. And here's the type of candidates that the Democrats are putting up this round. Let's play cut one. I run on Roe v. Wade. I celebrate the demise of Roe v. Wade. 
Yeah, they celebrate the demise of Roe v. Wade. That was something. One more time, please. I run on Roe v. Wade. I celebrate the demise of Roe v. Wade. So this is who Democrats are putting out. That's John Fetterwoman, who is uh, looks like he needs um, a lot, a lot of help um, in terms of his health. And I say that with a degree of sympathy and that he is, I think, people, a lot of people talk about Joe Biden being propped up and stuff. I, I'm becoming more and more convinced that's not really the case, that he mostly knows what he's doing. And in in a in a not good way that I feel that way, I don't think that's a good thing, but I think he mostly does know what he's doing. Um, I think that with Fetterman, he really is propped up because they have no other option. They should have declared after a stroke, we're going to have a, a, a writing candidate. Um, would have been really smart if they had said, let's write in Josh Shapiro, the guy who's running for governor, and is up a lot over Mastriano, and then uh, maybe do write in candidate in that race too, because Mastriano is not a strong candidate for governor, though I do hope he wins for the record. I got one scolding email saying I'm not doing enough to pump Mastriano. Okay. If you're in Pennsylvania, please vote for Mastriano, in my opinion. Okay. There you go. I've said it. But um, not a strong candidate there, even um, compared to Oz, who I thought was a particularly weak candidate, and this turned out to be an okay candidate. He's got some bad background, but he's saying some good stuff in the campaign trail, and he's running with vigor, enthusiasm, which I like. I do like that. I'm big on vigor. I think a lot of people lose it. There's a lot of ways to take people's vigor and zest away. Um, and grit, fighting through stuff. It's big. But um, can I do one more time? It's too good. Cut one. I run on Roe v. Wade. I celebrate the demise of Roe v. Wade. So tough. It's so brutal. Brutal. Absolutely brutal. This is who Democrats are running compared to Republicans who are running J.D. Vance and Blake Masters and Tudor Dixon and Herschel Walker and General Baldock and the type of people who with some of these Congress people Myra Flores, Tom Barrett, we're going to meet in a little bit. I mean, is the list of potential stars, Adam Laxalt, who are coming out of the Republican side this time around are just, I mean, you can't get enough of them. Christine Drazen, the list of the people who could be heading to positions of power or bigger power next time around on the Republican side is just, it, it, it's so exciting. It's so exciting. So not to mention some of the seats we're defending, like the Rubio seat and the um, Ron Johnson seat. But Lee Zeldin, I mean, there's a there's so many great candidates. And then you've got I, the demise of Roe v. Wade. I got to be careful because I'm going to make the microphone peak and it scratches your ear. I don't want to do that. But ooh, that's sad. Um, yeah, uh, Fetterman's having a tough time. Having a tough time. He really is. Uh, he needs this race to be over. So I feel uh, happy for him, though his uh, awful wife, who put him up to this, uh, I, I believe she is uh, should answer some questions about this personally. He said he's going to. Joe Biden says Fetterman's going to help him ban assault weapons. So just to let you know, anyone who thinks he's moderate because he plays one on TV sometimes, 
All right, one non election related issue, which I think is election related, is MSNBC has let go of Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross, a conspiracy theorist who just refers to Clarence Thomas as Tom or Justice Pubic Hair in a Coke can. And it's a Pepsi can, by the way, it wasn't Coke. So just a very mean, uh, disparaging, takes lots of shots at black Republicans in particular. So it's clearly got some big racial hangups. But the main thing is she's the one who's been advocating that we are already in a civil war and she wants her followers to take up arms, literally wants her followers to get armed because we're already in a civil war and has remained on air for a couple of years with a full show on the weekends on MSNBC. And she was let go, which I think is very much related to the fact that there is this rise of violence. And I think people know the big secret, which is it's not just coming from the left. I'm, I'm sorry, from the right. I'm not saying there isn't a some political violence from the right. I'm not denying that. But I'm saying that if they're going to extend themselves to say that a hippie nudist hemp guy with BLM and LGBT stickers on his windows from Berkeley attacking Paul Pelosi under really odd circumstances may or may not have been his underwear at the time. If that's the representative of MAGA, then what do you take? Uh, then how do you how are we supposed to take MSNBC hosts who literally say we're in a civil war right now, currently, as we speak? Clearly, there's some hypocrisy there. So she's out. And right as it happens, there's a report that uh, Carrie Lake, Republican, another one of those uh, potentially massive stars, um, running for governor saying that uh, her campaign office received suspicious white powder and threatening messages. Democracy is on the ballot, ladies and gentlemen. We were in a climate of violence. And it's not really coming from the MAGAs, is it? Add that to the list. Maybe I'll have Nolte do a rap sheet of all of the examples of uh, violence against conservatives. Suspicious white powder and threatening messages. What is her crime? Doesn't like what Joe Biden has to say and is pretty good at articulating why she doesn't like it. And recall her opponent, Katie Hobbs, won't debate her because, again, democracy's on the ballot. Joy Reid, who was the host that Tiffany Cross took over from, who's now on every night on MSNBC, says the Republicans taught people the, the word inflation, and most had never used that word before. Okay. So inflation is just something that we talk about on the show. It's not really part of your lives at all. All right, let me run down a few more things before we go to the phones. On a Trafalgar poll, J.D. Vance is now up 10 points over Tim Ryan. So uh, one of the words that you you are not allowed to put on your drinking game tomorrow, if you're going to be uh, having a drinking game for the election, is I've seen enough. Because there's going to be a lot of I've seen enough talk on the internet and on TV for people who predict which races are going to go. That said, since it's first thing on a Monday, I've seen enough. J.D. Vance is going to win, and it's going to be a big one. Going to be a big one. And for this audience in particular, because J.D. is... Um, you've been a regular on the show for a long time. And it's great that we're going to have, uh, it's a just, this show is going to benefit greatly from this red wave, I have to say. Especially if we start seeing things like uh, Lee Zeldin winning too. There's so many people who come on the show on a regular basis 
who I've known since before this campaign and have worked with on stuff before this campaign, uh, have a chance to get to the to positions of massive power in the country. Be very cool. Be very cool. Uh, we had a exclusive report at Breitbart that Joe Biden has welcomed at least 6.2 thousand, the 6,200 illegal aliens into this country every day at the border. So border is open. No denying it. And I think that is a, a, a going to be a factor. People go to the polls. Joe Biden has also boasted that all that that only <laughs> all electric cars will be manufactured in America by twenty thirty five. I'm sorry, thirty thirty five. I misquoted his bad quote. Thirty thirty five was his quote. You know what? Uh, Amuse me about this. And I guess I should read the exact exact quote. He says. Um, they're they're going all electric by thirty thirty five, referring to General Motors. Um, I I like this so much because I said on I was referring to how long, I think it was, um, China's going to build coal fired power plants, and I think this was Friday's show, it was Thursday or Fridays, and I said they're going to be building them to thirty fifty. Because they're building them, they've already announced they're going to build them through 2030. And I said that's not a real number because there'll be no accountability at that point. So they can push it 2040 or 2050. And then I said over 3050 because they don't really care that much what we think. And then Joe Biden comes out and says, we're going to be all electric by 3035. It's just funny. It's just funny. I think it. And then it becomes reality. China was making fun of Biden over the weekend, saying the extreme MAGA speech that he had proves he has no courage to face his slew of fiascos. I have to say, I don't agree with the Global Times much, but when I do, it is funny. This is literal Chinese propaganda, but it did amuse me to read it. Making fun of Biden's speech, saying he has no courage to face his slew of fiascos, which is true. It's totally true. I don't like to agree with the communists, but I do in this case. Um, Now he's uh, mad at Elon Musk, who is spewing lies all over the country, apparently. All right. I will say, I think I figured out how Musk can do a better job with Twitter. So he's got to create his own advertising network. And then he's going to have to have some cojones. And he's going to have to stand up to the left. Who's going to try to get certain people banned from being on the net, the network. And, um, you know, he's going to have to allow the network to exist in places like Breitbart and elsewhere. So, and there's going to be a lot of pressure on that. But other than that, I don't see how he can achieve his mutual goals of more free speech on Twitter and um, making it more palatable for advertisers because advertisers are leaving the platform currently. So they're going the wrong direction in terms of quantity of users on the platform and quantity of advertisers. Though they did fire half their staff on Friday, which makes sense to me because it's got to be mostly engineers, salespeople, and comment moderators. And the moderators are doing a terrible job because they're being way too censorious and they're missing a lot of really bad stuff and they're censoring a lot of accurate stuff like true stories about Hunter Biden from the New York Post. And then the engineers Musk doesn't trust and Musk is lousy with engineers because of his other businesses, which are way more successful than Twitter. So you feel like you get the new engineers in. You feel like you, you could jettison most of the moderators and hopefully replace them with people who are not quite as woke. And the rest got to be salespeople. They're not selling anything. It's the Twitter is a disaster of a business model. 
considering how uh, powerful their brand is, they make almost no money, relatively speaking. So it makes sense to me that he fired half the people. Uh, but interesting. Biden has not called Prime Minister Netanyahu to congratulate him on the Israeli election. Interesting. I am uh, not stunned by that, to be honest with you. Media mostly ignored the physical attack on General Bolduc that we reported on last week. So media not interested. So just to tell you, democracy is on the ballot. And it, it is, if you are silent, you are violent. If you are silent about Republicans like Kerry Lake and about General Baldock and uh, there's a shooting outside of Lee Zeldin's house, I don't know what that was about. Um, but any type of threat against Republicans, if you're not, if you are silent about it, you are pro-violence. At least that's what we were told. Um, Alex Scarlatos is surging. He's another one, a U.S. Army National Guard running in Oregon. Chance to pick up a seat that's been controlled by Democrats for 40 years. It's one to keep on your mind. Baldock leading Hassan in New Hampshire, according to a poll. Republican staffers and volunteers continue to be the subject of attacks. A report from over the weekend, an Illinois man threatened to kill Republican gubernatorial candidate Darren Bailey and his family. A disorderly Gretchen Whitmer supporter allegedly bit an attendee at a Tudor-Dixon rally. A Marco Rubio volunteer, as we reported recently, was viciously attacked by assailants who said Republicans weren't allowed to be in their neighborhood. That's just some that we rounded up quickly over the weekend at Breitbart. There's others, of course. So don't believe what you're being told that it is somehow Republicans who are the big threat. Um, according to Erasmusson poll, by the way, Republicans are leading the congressional ballot by five points, which again, normally Republicans come in at a disadvantage. So it's not just a five-point lead. It's probably more like an eight-point swing, according to Rasmussen. How has Rasmussen been this time around? I've been really interested in this pollster ranking that Real Clear Politics points out. Rasmussen has is in the middle. So they're the 10th out of the 23 that um, for multi-state polls that Real Clear keeps an eye on. Um, and um, so that, that puts him sort of in the middle based on race and recent multi-state rule, multi-state races. And they were fourth in the presidential race in 2024, most accurate. So pretty good poll. So they think it's five points. But again, five could be eight. Or five could be two, but two's not so bad. So we're going to hear from three Republican candidates today on the broadcast. First up is Leora Levy, who is running for Senate in Connecticut, a race that would have been unthinkable that would even be a chance Democrats could lose it. And again, a long shot, but still in the realm of possibilities. So let's hear her explain why Richard Blumenthal is such a bad candidate and why she's a strong one right now. Leora, it's great to talk with you. Uh, let me 
first start with your background. You were born in Cuba. You escaped communism. It's an amazing story. Could you share with the audience? Yes. Well, actually, it starts even earlier. My mother and my grandparents escaped Nazi Europe in 1940, were wow. not admitted into the United States. They were at Ellis Island, were not admitted because of FDR's quota for Jews. They were going to be sent back to die, to be murdered with the rest of the, our extended family who did not escape. But luckily, they were able to get visas to Cuba. And they went to Cuba in 1940. Twenty years later, we had to escape Cuba. We had to escape communism. So I know what I'm fighting for. I love this country. This country has, has been a heaven and a haven for my family, and I want it to be that for every family. I'm running to make sure this country is always free and independent, that people have their constitutional rights guaranteed to us, but they are unalienable rights guaranteed by God, not from the government. And when I hear Joe Biden talk the way he did the other day, in a very dark and uh, totalitarian way, I am even more sure of why I'm running. My opponent supports him 100%. Uh, it seems like there's a lack of clarity on the left side of the aisle in particular right now in terms of what are the biggest threats facing us. They keep telling us democracy is under attack and the real problem are uh, you know, violent MAGA extremists in, in who live in Berkeley and, you know, hippie communes for whatever reason. Like, that's that's the biggest threat to democracy right now. I, I don't know if I buy into it. And I feel like someone who has escaped communism and communist Cuba might have an advantage in terms of understanding what are the real problems that are facing us and not just the things that the media want to talk about. So what do you think are the biggest battles we're facing as a country right now? Well, the biggest battles is that, frankly, is that they are politicizing our children's education. They are exposing them to inappropriate sexual gender ideology. They, our children are our future. They are entitled to a childhood. And frankly, this is not just an attack on the children. It is an attack on the American nuclear family. The nuclear family is the basis of our culture, of our society, of our country, and the strength of our country. And, and once you destroy the family, you've destroyed America. That's why I'm running. Feel... I want our children to, to have the same freedom and opportunity that we have had to live whatever is their American dream. It does feel like that the war on the family is deeply significant right now. Um, Connecticut is a blue state, and it's very hard for Republicans to win there on a statewide basis. Why do you think this is your year and you're specifically the candidate to create a big change here? Because, the fa because Connecticut voters understand and are ready for change. They know that life does not have to be this way. Life can be affordable again. Life can be safe again. We can stop the fentanyl from coming into our communities by closing our border, having a secure border. We can be energy independent again to make life affordable again. These are all the results of the failed policies of the Biden administration rubber stamped 
voted for, supported for 100% by my opponent, Dick Blumenthal, who is a 37-year career politician. When I ask people, what has he done to make your life better, they cannot even name one thing. The only thing they know about him is that he lied about going to Vietnam. He lied about going to the Communist Party. He said he didn't when he did. And don't get between him and a camera. Literally. That's what people know. Yeah, I was going to bring this up, that he did lie about going to Vietnam. He's also participated in this uh, slave day as a school student council leader. He's got some very odd things in his background. Do you think the voters will hold him accountable for these things? I hope they do. It is time. There's even more. He actually worked in the Nixon administration in the White House. He had an off His office was right there in the White House. And his office issued a memo which called for benign neglect of the black community. I don't know who wrote that, whether he did, but it came from his office, and he didn't leave. He stayed. So he he must have agreed with it. I'd like to contrast that with my life experience. I was a child at that point. I lived in the... I was growing up in the Jim Crow South. I... I knew racism was wrong, discrimination was wrong. When, when I was just starting high school, Charlotte-Mecklenburg County uh, District Schools, they were the, among the first in the country to desegregate. A lot of my friends, even my sisters, left and went to pub- private school. My parents tried to make me go to private school. I refused. I said, no, I believe in this. I want to be part of the solution not the problem. And I stayed. And I made it my business to be a bridge between different groups of people. And I made friends with anybody who, who would be friend, you know, who I would be who would be friends with me. I've lived it. He, on the other hand, talks a good line, but he has not lived it. He, his life has been a facade. Uh, there's been a crime wave affecting a lot of our major cities in Connecticut has not been spared of this. Uh, two officers in Bristol were shot in October. Um, I know a lot of people who live in Connecticut commute into New York where the crime wave uh, is very prominent and I think a front of mind for a lot of people. Uh, do you think Senator Blumenthal has contributed to the anti-police sentiment that we have in our country right now? And yeah, go ahead. He absolutely has. He supported the police accountability here. This was a a state law that was passed, so obviously he didn't vote on it, but he didn't speak out against it either. And he attended Black Lives Matter rallies where they called for defunding the police. And he spoke at those rallies calling for reimagining the police, whatever that means. He does not support our police. I've been endorsed by the Connecticut Fraternal Order of Police. I'm very proud of that. One of my priorities when I get to the Senate is to write legislation that will require any state or municipality that wants federal funds for anything to provide qualified immunity for their police. Uh, I was looking at Blumenthal's record and he just seems to vote with party leadership literally 100% of the time. Uh, Immigration, economics, 
uh, energy. There doesn't seem to be a single exception where he breaks from the mainstream of the Democratic Party. And so you call them a do nothing Democrat. Can you explain what you mean by that? And um, and yeah, yeah, just explain that comment. Well, actually, he's worse than a do nothing. He he has made he is responsible for all of the policies that are that have made life unaffordable here in Connecticut, that have made life unsafe in Connecticut, that have allowed the indoctrination of our children with a politicized and sexualized education, that have created an invasion at the border, that has has made Connecticut a border state because they are flying illegals to Westchester County Airport. That is five miles from my house on the New York State-Connecticut border. It is about six, six and a half miles from his house. He has never spoken up against it. And they're flying them in. They've been flying them here since August of 2021. Fentanyl is coming into our communities. We've had eight babies die in Connecticut. We've had teenagers die. We've had young adults. I've met with mothers of young adults in their 20s who thought they were taking some kind of other pill, but it turned out to be laced with or sure. early fentanyl and they died. Uh, it's, yeah, I agree with you. He's, he is worse than do nothing Democrat. He seems to be a part of the cutting edge of how the left has moved our party in a, I'm sorry, in our country in a wrong direction. So what are the issues that you feel like uh, people from Connecticut who typically do vote Democrat, where you feel like you could pick them up and bring them to your side? What do you think is perhaps changing in their minds? Well, everybody goes to the grocery store. They, everybody goes to the gas station. They know that, that they have to make choices. Do I feed my kids? Do I fill my tank so I can get to work to make some money? We live in the Northeast. It gets cold here in the winter. There is a historic shortage of home heating oil, of natural gas, of diesel. And even the president of our uh, largest utility company, Eversource, wrote to President Trump, uh, Biden, excuse me, he wrote to President Biden last week warning him of the looming shortage for natural gas, warning him that there will be blackouts, that there will, that people will not be able to heat their home. It will be a public health emergency if he doesn't do anything. And so far, his response was no more drilling, no more coal mines. We're shutting down the coal mines. said that yesterday, I believe. We, we must change the direction of this country, and people understand that. They also don't like their children being indoctrinated. It, it, it ha- it's happening all over our state. Parents are up in arms. So they know I will support parents. I'm a mother. I raised three sons here. So I will always support parents, and I want our children to be educated, not indoctrinated. You've said that Senator Blumenthal is a career politician, but you're a career in American. Could you explain this one to us? Well, you know, I'm not a career politician, but from the day I got to America, from the first day they put me in nursery school as a three-year-old, all I wanted to be was an American. I was so excited about being here. And I wanted to learn English. That's, I wanted to be an American. And that's the way I've lived my life. Everything I've done 
has been as a volunteer, whether it's to serve on on boards and commissions, whether whether it's to run big uh, public-private partnerships in my community, whether it's to be involved philanthropically. It's always been to build my my country to to help our country succeed. That's why I'm running. Leora Levy again is with me. She's the candidate to replace Richard Blumenthal in Connecticut. Big race tomorrow. What do you say to motivate people who are probably shocked that you're in a position to maybe pull off one of the biggest upsets, which is, you know, it's a historic thing, and you can't you can't count on these things happening so often. But uh, what's your last pitch to anyone who might be on the fence in Connecticut who's listening right now? You know, life does not have to be this way. Life can be affordable again. Life can be safe again. Your children can have a childhood again and have a good education to prepare them for the future. But we must change the policy. To change the policy, we must change the leadership. This is a change election. The American people, the families of Connecticut want change. We will never change if we just elect the same people over and over again. That is why I'm running. That is why I will defeat Dick Blumenthal tomorrow. Wonderful commentary from Leora Levy. Really interesting to meet you, and best of luck. You'll have a lot of people in the audience rooting for you really hard this, this week. Thank you so much. May I give my website one more time? Absolutely. Please do. It's Leora4CT.com, and it's the word for, F-O-R, not the number. Thanks, Leora, and hopefully we'll come back as Senator-elect. You bet. Tom Barrett, who's a Republican nominee in Michigan's highly contested 7th District, is someone I actually met at the first political conference I went to when I was a young Republican for Young America's Foundation. I had to have been 21 at the time, maybe, and we were roommates at a Holiday Inn Express in Santa Barbara for the weekend, and uh, it was a fun uh, weekend, and he was a very impressive guy. He was already in the Army and I think had designs on a big future, perhaps politics, but uh, a really nice person who clearly is driven by some pretty strong values, and it's good to get to know him because he's running against one of the worst Democrats around. Alyssa Slotkin, who represents so much of what's wrong with Washington. This is a big race, so let's get to know Tom Barrett. I don't know if you recall this, but we were at a YAF conference together, Young America's Foundation, about 14 or 15 years ago. And uh, I I, I found you to be a very likable and impressive young guy with clearly headed for something good. And hopefully it's the U.S. Congress. Uh, Tell me about what you've been up to the last 15 years. Yeah, well, I've uh, I've been in the Army for uh, uh, since uh, before you and I met, uh, joined uh, right out of high school and then uh, continued my service, uh, just retired earlier this year. Um, and uh, along the way, came home from one of my deployments, got married. My wife and I have four kids that we're raising, and I got elected to the state legislature eight years ago here in Michigan, uh, reelected and then ultimately elected to the state Senate, where I serve right now and and running for congress because i mean you know and your listeners know america is on the wrong track and i remind people of all of the just pain and suffering that the biden administration has brought us 
and how we need to put America back on the right track and change directions. And that's fundamentally why I'm running for Congress. So I want to talk to you about Michigan in general and your race in particular, because you're going up against Alyssa Slotkin, who is one of the stars of the Democrat Party right now. And this has made this race one of the most expensive, if not the most expensive in the country. It's seen as one of the true yeah. battlegrounds that's out there. But this has also made it really sort of exciting. Uh, it's gotten you, I think, a lot of uh, media, a lot of incredible endorsements, Tulsi Gabbard, Mike Pence, many others who have come out and campaigned for you. Uh, it must be sort of a surreal experience. But talk to me about it why is. this district is such a such a swing district right now. It is. And, and you're exactly right. In the district, because of our new um, uh, census in Michigan, we lost a congressional seat because Michigan did not grow in population at the rate of many other states. So we lost one of our congressional uh, seats here in Michigan, which meant the reconfiguration changed quite a bit. On top of that, the people of Michigan opted to create this independent redistricting commission, which was a panel of people that drew the district lines that we have. And that kind of went late into the season, ultimately was uh, finished less than a year ago. Um, and the district that they drew really incorporated um, parts of the area that my opponent represents in Congress right now, but then absorbed nearly all of the district that I currently represent in the state Senate. So it, it really formed into this very, very competitive district, one that has you know, if you were to stack up the uh, the candidates, you know, statewide candidates and past performances, it, it strikes a very clean balance between Republican and Democrat. And so that's made it a very competitive seat. And it's one that we know we need to pick up in order to win back the Republican majority in Congress. So I've been thankful for some of the national attention coming into this race. But my opponent has spent so much money. She is one of the most prolific fundraisers in Congress that she has spent over $11 million just from her own campaign, not counting the outside super PACs and everything else. Wow. Uh, when, when the dust settles on this race tomorrow, um, the total spending in this congressional campaign, my actual campaign that I've raised money into and spent money from will have spent less than 10% of the total money spent in this district. And we're going to win. Our polls are, are, you know, a dead heat right now. We've now taken the lead in, in some polling that's been done just in the last few days. We're not in any way taking that for granted, but it shows that the momentum is swinging our way and we've just got to finish this off. Uh, it's not too late if people want to get involved and help us uh, get over the finish line and help fund our Election Day operations. They can go to my website that you mentioned, TomBarrettForCongress.com. Every dollar we raise is going right into our Election Day voter contact and reminding voters and phone banking and the things that we've got to do uh, all the way through the finish line on Election Day. Yeah, one thing that I has been not notable, I think, is tracking Michigan, which seemed like one of the few purple states that the Democrats were still polling very well in that state until recently. It seems like over the last couple of months, really since the fall kicked in, that you've seen a lot of the late breakers break away from the Democrat establishment that controls much of the state. Uh, the polling for You're Gretchen right. Whitmer has cratered. Um, I know Tudor Dixon is running a, a really excellent campaign um, and I think is really proven to be one of the star candidates that's out there. I'm sure that helps buoy your race as well. Uh, but it just seems like Michiganders all of a sudden decided they're fed up. Uh, what do you think happened? And did you notice this as well, that it sort of clicked in, Absolutely. it seems like, recently? Yeah. Yeah, it seems like Michigan was on a bit of a time delay by about a week or 10 days, maybe, from a lot of the national trend lines, as, you know, the trend lines for Republicans were 
um, increasing, say, about a month ago or six weeks ago. Michigan seemed to have a little bit of a lag time. And I think some of that was just the absolutely outlandish differential between uh, Tudor Dixon, like you said, uh, our Republican nominee for governor, what she was able to spend versus what Gretchen Whitmer was spending. It was like over 30 or 35 million that the Whitmer side was spending combined. And the Dixon campaign had very little uh, that they were being that they were able to put into ads until more recently. And, you know, they kind of shot up their ammo early trying to define Tudor Dixon. And once people saw her on the debate stage and saw her performance and contrasted her with Gretchen Whitmer, that really um, invigorated the Dixon campaign. And then some money came in for her. She's been able to put some ads up on TV, do more of that voter contact. Her rallies have been just fantastically well attended. I've I've, uh, been at a number of them on the uh, tour with uh, the Dixon campaign as they've traveled the state. And, you know, when they stop in my district, uh, I've been at the rallies and they're just, you know, people are coming out for this. And uh, you're right. They've kind of become awake and emboldened. And if we peak at the right time, uh, you know, tomorrow, then then, you know, that's really going to be a, a favorable strategy for Republicans in Michigan is is really seizing that momentum and carrying it through Election Day. One of the things that's interesting is to track the endorsements in this race and how Liz Cheney has now endorsed your opponent, Alyssa Slotkin, and you've been endorsed by Tulsi Gabbard, who's a Democrat until, you know, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Does a Liz Cheney endorsement help or or hurt your opponent, Tom? I think it actually hurts her because it really energized the Republicans in my district and across the country to really want to help out and want to jump in to help us out. And it raised the profile. And Liz Cheney uh, talked about the work her and Alyssa Slotkin had done together on the Armed Services Committee as a reason for her her endorsement. And I just pointed out in every single interview I I did, the complete lack of any accountability for this administration on the Armed Services Committee for any of what happened in Afghanistan, where we had so many service members. We had 13 service members killed. America had 13 new gold star families that day that, you know, uh, that Joe Biden let the Taliban be in charge of security for our troops. And then, um, you know, ultimately uh, 13 were killed, dozens more injured, and they've done nothing to hold them accountable whatsoever. And, you know, the Cheney family, the Slotkins, like these people are obsessed with foreign military intervention by American troops. And I am trying to do my best to keep us out of foreign entanglements. Of course, the Cheney family never saw a war. They wouldn't send other people's kids to go fight. And, you know, my opponent, Alyssa Slotkin, is on record supporting a ground war with China. And I simply want to keep America safe by having a strong defense that serves as a deterrent to our foreign adversaries, emboldens our allies, but doesn't put American boots on every single conflict around the world. We have to be more strategic about where we engage with military force. And you're speaking as someone with decades of experience in the armed services. And I think this is a real major moment here, almost historical realignment, because you're seeing Republicans. It's been over the last five or six years or so, but it really seems to have solidified this election cycle you're seeing a lot of Republicans with military experience. J.D. Vance, I guess Tul- Tulsi Gabbard now has left the Democrat Party, and uh, you know she's she's a part of this as well. Uh, what you're saying versus a lot of these Democrats who are now acting as though we should be fighting all these wars and spending all of our money in foreign wars and maybe getting American boots on the ground 
it's been a pretty amazing flippage in terms of the party alignment here that the Democrats are much more aligned with the military industrial complex and the sort of warmongers like the Liz Cheney's of the war of the world. This is something that from your vantage point, I want to get your take on this as someone who served for so long. Uh, What are what changed here? Yeah, you are exactly right. And I think you're seeing this new generation of veterans who served over this last 20 year period of these endless wars that America has been involved in to question, all right, what is our strategy when we go engage with military force? What is our exit strategy? What does victory look like? What are the you know second and third order effects of what we're doing when we go in and, and you know put boots on the ground? And what does that look like? And what are we committed to following through on? You can't fight politically correct wars. You know, good people and bad people die uh, in war, and that's a that's a tragic situation. But you can't you know tie, <clears throat> tie the hands of the military. <clears throat> excuse me, when we're fighting in a war, and you've got to ask you know why are we involved and what are the you know, outcomes of what we're doing and what's our exit strategy look like. I mean, our intelligence community told us that we'd walk into Iraq and we'd be welcomed like heroes and the operation would be over and done very quickly. Of course, that didn't happen. Uh, You look at what happened in Afghanistan. I mean, we spend 20 years there just to hand the country right back to the Taliban on our way out the door after being promised by the Biden administration that wouldn't happen. We have to be smarter about what we're doing. I fully agreed with leaving Afghanistan but the way in which it was done and the way our president handled it and the collapse of leadership by him as president and the military leaders at the top of the chain of command has led to no accountability whatsoever. And and we need to hold these leaders accountable. They're more worried about politically correct garbage than they are about keeping our troops and their welfare safe. Tom Barrett is the Republican nominee in Michigan's 7th District, which might turn out to be the most expensive race in the country. Tom Barrett for Congress.com. Tom, you've been named the most conservative state senator in Michigan, and you're proud of this. Uh, Your opponent, Alyssa Slotkin, portrays herself as a moderate and yet has a 100 percent voting record with Nancy Pelosi. This is another uh, phenomenon which is fascinating, which is that conservatives love to brag about being conservative and the left wingers all talk like they're moderates. It's very strange. And break this down for us. (laughs) You're exactly right. And, you know, I am proud of my record. I I ran on conservative principles. I represent a very marginal district in the state legislature. I have since I was first elected, I defeated a Democrat incumbent by only a handful of votes, thankfully was reelected by a bigger margin the next time. And then Right now, I represent a district in the state Senate that Gretchen Whitmer won four years ago, the same year that I was elected to the state Senate. Gretchen Whitmer, our Democrat governor here, carried my district by about four points, and I won by 10 points. And I didn't do it by pretending to be somebody I'm not. I have an independent voting record in Lansing, one that holds my own county, my own party accountable where necessary and appropriate. But I am a conservative because I believe that the solutions to the problems we're facing in our state and in our country are found by conservative solutions. Those are the answers to the problems we're facing. And my opponent likes to attack me over it. And I just, you know, I I believe that the principles that we're elected on, we ought to follow through on. I didn't think this was such a radical concept, but apparently for people on the left, uh, they believe in campaigning under one set of, of, you know, talking points and, and advocacy and then governing, you know, completely aligned with Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi. 
So let's. So what are you going to apply those principles to when you get to Washington? What's first and foremost on your mind yeah. when you get to the yeah, Congress? Yeah, I think our, our, our biggest real you know threat to America right now is the border, and we have to secure the border just first and foremost. We've got to start there. We've got to fire the 87,000 IRS agents that are going to be harassing you know, middle class and working class Americans if they're instated the way that the Biden administration and Alyssa Slack and my opponent have voted for. I'd like to convert some of those IRS agents to maybe some more border patrol agents. Yeah. Uh, so amen. secure our border, fire the IRS agents, hold government accountable. The administrative state is growing so large that our elected lawmakers are having less and less authority to advocate on behalf of the people that elected them. The government is getting out of control by a, a growing bureaucracy that that seems to be um, you know completely insulated from any accountability we can't allow that to happen we've got to you know restore accountability we've got to retract some of the failures of the Biden administration we've got to get inflation under control and we've got to explore our own energy and natural gas and oil reserves in our own country to make America energy independent again Back to your opponent, Alyssa Slotkin, briefly. She's been living in the home of a mega lobbyist, and she was asked about this in a forum on live TV by a news anchor, and she seemed to sort of have a meltdown. Uh, what, what was your reaction to this? And fill in the audience on the story if they're not familiar with it. Yeah, it was really strange. Um, my opponent, because of the redistricting, did not live in the new boundaries of this new congressional district. I've lived here since I returned home from Iraq and got married. And uh, meanwhile, my opponent no longer resided in this new district where she wanted to run. So she moved to this district in order to run against me for Congress. Um, when she did that, she decided to rent her residence from a government relations ex executive um, for a, um, uh, for a uh, pharmaceutical company. And uh, she did that um, renting, you know, from this uh, lobbyist and, and he's received tens of millions in government contracts for his company. Uh, the Slotkin campaign tried to deny any impropriety. Uh, we pointed out that she's registered to vote now at this residence and he's registered to vote there. Um, she's feigning, you know, that she's offended by all of this, suggesting that, you know, the two of them are living together. And I'm I'm not indicating any marital impropriety. I've just pointed out that, you know, it's a bizarre circumstance that she would be registered to vote at the same residence as this government relations executive, you know, in a residence that she's renting where he's received tens of millions of government contracts. The whole thing just stinks. Yeah, it's not, not a good look at a minimum. Tom Barrett is with me. He is a candidate in Michigan in the very important 7th District. And uh, Tom, I appreciate you coming on the show. The last one for today, for it, it, yeah, is is the last one's going to be, tell me about your district. How do they benefit with you as a congressperson versus Alyssa Slotkin? Absolutely. It's about putting America back on the right track. It's about my record that I've had not just in the military, but serving my constituents in the state legislature, taking that same fire in the belly to Washington. I've been a leading advocate of holding Gretchen Whitmer accountable here in Michigan, and I want to take that same accountability mindset to Washington to hold the Biden administration accountable. And God willing, and with some help, we'll get this done tomorrow, and, and we'll start putting America back on the right track. Thanks, Tom. Appreciate it. Come back soon. Thank you for having me.
third guest today. I don't know if you've ever had three guests on the show, but we wanted to get all these candidates as much of a forum as possible. Wesley Hunt, Republican nominee for Congress in Texas's 38th district. He's running way ahead, but he's got an amazing background as a Apache helicopter pilot and uh, now heading for the Congress and is really high energy, which I love. Let's get to know Wesley Hunt. Wesley, great to have you on the broadcast. You're a West Point grad, Army veteran. You were an Apache helicopter pilot, a, a amazing service record. Uh, tell us a little bit about this and what made you uh, turn to politics. Well, thank you so much for having me on, and good morning. Uh, politics is something that obviously is, uh, is is always around us. It's been around my life, you know, uh, for my entire life, and it's something that I've always kind of thought about doing for a while. And I view this as continued service. You know, I served eight years in the Army as an Apache helicopter pilot, and I come from a military family where service is very important to us. Uh, my dad's a retired lieutenant colonel. Uh, my sister's a West Point graduate. I'm a West Point graduate, and so is my brother. So it's about uh, 60 years with the military service just in my immediate family. And I view politics as an extended part of service that's outside of performing kinetic operations, maybe abroad, but actually fighting the war right here in our own country in order to preserve our values and our way of life. So what is first and foremost to you in terms of where you see the country going in the wrong direction that you feel like you could be part of the solution in the Congress? Well, I think, I think we, have, we have some low-hanging fruit right now. <laughs> if you're looking at what's happening with inflation, looking at what's happening at the border, looking at what's happening with crime, enough fentanyl has poured into our country to kill every single American five times, and, of course, the war on our own domestic energy. I'm running for U.S. Congress right here, Congressional District 38. It's the newly created one here in Texas. we got two new seats. One was put in Austin. One was put in Houston. And if Houston is known as the energy capital of the world, that makes me the energy congressman of the world, given where my district is. And so just the disastrous policies that we see from the Biden administration really, quite frankly, makes it quite easy for us not just take back the House, probably the Senate, but also to get some things done for the American people. Look, it's uh, don't spend any more money. It's secure the border. It's don't raise taxes. It's we need to fund the police more, not defund the police. It's just these basic fundamental, what I think are American principles that we've got to get back to. And that's why Tuesday, tomorrow for us, I think it's going to be a very good day. Uh, I think it could be too. It's also interesting to be in a brand new district. Uh, does that make things different for you? And also it's bragging rights for Texas in general. They keep picking up congressional seats, whereas, you know, New York and California keep losing them. You know, that's kind of, that's kind of what I say every single day. You know, Texas got two new seats, presumably one from California, one from New York. So you're welcome, America. And there's a reason <laughs> why people are moving down here to Texas. Because we understand what freedom means. We understand that we don't want to tax you to death. We want small businesses to prosper. We want big business to, pro to prosper. We want the government out of your lives. And, and I feel like Texas and Florida are doing a very good job of that. But I'm, I'm very proud to be the first congressman in this new seat. Uh, a little bit about the demographics. Uh, it's a district that President Trump would have won by about 20 to 25 points today. It's also a 72% white majority district. Uh, I'm a black man. And what I love about that is that I will be the first congressman as a black man in a white majority seat in a district that Trump would have won by 25 points because that's the Houston, Texas that I know and love. It's not about race. It's not about religion, color or creed. It's about good governance that we all want to see regardless of what you look like. And that's what I have the opportunity to represent right here in Houston.
You know, it's interesting that you mentioned that you're a black person and there's a lot of strong minority candidates on the Republican side and almost none of them talk about race. And it is noteworthy. It's one of the elephants in the room in this race is that there's such diversity on the Republican slate. And they're all making the case, it appears, that race is not a big factor. There are other Democrats out there who uh, speak obsessively about race, and their party is run by mostly translucently white individuals. Um, There's a pattern that's emerging here, Wesley. Speak to this. Of course. And I think this is, this is really what I've learned just in my endeavor. I, I had a, a, a 10-person primary. Um, I beat out nine white guys uh, in a 10-person primary. Why? Because I was just the best candidate, regardless of the way I looked. You're looking at John James up in Michigan, Jennifer Ruth Green up in Indiana, and so many other people across this country that are that – are, we've, we've been born and raised to be conservative. We are conservative people. We are, a conservative, we are a conservative culture. And the left would have you believe that a white conservative would not vote for a black conservative. That is categorically false. That is a lie. And when you have people like me and John James and Jennifer that are, that are stepping up into the fray, what we are showing is that nobody cares what we look like anymore. Was there a time in this country where that was different? Of course there was. But we've come a long way, and I think just my candidacy alone is proof of that. The left would have you believe that I can't exist. But not only are we going to win tomorrow, we're going to win big. And I feel like our party has got to talk about race, not in terms of race dividing us, but in terms of how diversity makes us stronger as a people. And quite frankly, the racists that I see come far more from, from the left than what I see in my own party. Well, my hometown's L.A., and I was just semi-obsessed with their city council Democrats uh, making racial slurs against other Democrats. It's just fascinating to watch, and it just doesn't unbelievable. happen. Unbelievable. Yeah, and and it's the and and it feels like we're going to see a shift. Um, I I think we can put this in the in the bank that we're going to see a shift with black and Hispanic voters moving towards Republicans this time around. Uh, why do you think that's happening? Speak to this. Um, it's, especially Hispanic voters down here down here in Texas. So, um, um, Beto O'Rourke tomorrow is about to get is about to get creamed, and the reason why he's going to is because Hispanic voters. They are hardworking, conservative, cultural, cultural people that honestly just just want to be safe and want the government to leave them alone. And and for whatever reason, the Democrat Party feels like they don't have to do anything to earn anybody's vote. Just because you're black or brown, you're going to vote for us. Well, over the course of the, of the past few cycles, we have seen what these disastrous policies have, have done, not just to black and brown people, sir, but to all people, but to all Americans. The rising tide raises all boats. And we are the party that wants to raise that tide. Hispanic Americans are seeing that. Black Americans are also coming coming along, especially black men. And I think in this midterm election, you're going to see the highest turnout of black people for the Republican Party in modern history. I think that could be true. And I think that the diversity on the Republican side is just really stunning. And I think it adds to this. Uh, narrative in a big way, but it's got to be the issues, right? It's got to be inflation, energy, border, fentanyl. I mean, crime, all, all this stuff is colorblind. And if it's not colorblind, it's disproportionately affecting minorities in cities that are run by Democrats. 
Uh, and it does feel like a lot of the inflationary policies hurts poor people more, and those people uh, tend to be have a, a skew towards minority communities. Uh, it just feels like the Democrat policies are just really making a terrible narrative that they're the ones who are the real uh, uh, benefit, or the ones who could really benefit black and brown voters. Uh, absolutely, and, and they want to blame everything on race, and this country is systemically racist and CRT, and we got to change the names on buildings and whatnot. These are all frivolous things that nobody cares about. I was talking to a woman uh, not that long ago in my own district, and she had to decide whether or not she was going to put gas in her car or buy insulin. I was speaking to another woman where she had to decide whether or not she could afford to take her kid to school or if she would take herself to work. These are black people. And I think when people realize that just two years ago, we didn't have these problems. And ever since Joe Biden took office, we've seen a deterioration across all boards. Everything in our entire country has basically gone, uh, has, has declined tremendously and precipitously. I think people are waking up and they're realizing that, you know what, elections matter. Elections have consequences. I am less interested in being divided on race and more interested in being able to afford to live the American dream that we just had two years ago. Um, we've seen a big slate also of veterans who have stepped forward to run for Congress this year. We just spoke to Tom Barrett, who's running Michigan a few moments ago. Uh, J.D. Vance is a regular on the show. There's a lot of people like this who are out there who are running, who have served. Uh, why do you think, I mean, so many Navy SEALs are on the ballot this year across the country. Uh, why do you think this is happening at this particular moment where we're just seeing so many veterans step up? So, so this is what I call the veterans right now are running for office. This is this is what I call the canary in the coal mine, and, and that is it, it's, mm. it's in 2018 we had the fewest number of veterans serving in the halls of Congress since World War II. That is rapidly turning around. Veterans are actually more apolitical than you think. We were we were we, we took an oath to to defend this country against all enemies, both foreign and domestic, regardless of who the president was. And when we served. We just served our country. But when you see veterans getting more politically engaged, and I will note that the overwhelming majority of them that are getting engaged are Republicans, what it tells you is that the very values and very fabric of this country is heading in, in a direction that we didn't fight for. And so when uh, you have people that are willing to give their lives for this country that basically were trained to be apolitical, now getting, now getting involved politically, we are the ones to bring this pendulum back to what the American dream is because we were the ones that are willing to die for it. Wesley Hunt is my guest, Republican nominee for the new 38th District of Texas, WesleyForTexas.com. Uh, unlike our, our friend Tom Barrett's race, uh, this this one seems to be well in hand, but uh, never count your chickens politically. But uh, it's, it seems like one that uh, the tr trending very well in the polls. Uh, so let me talk a little bit with you about the fact that Texas is, of course, a border state, has shares the biggest border with Mexico of any of our states, obviously. And this is a major part of not just life in Texas, but in America in general, the open border and the downstream effects of it. Uh, what's the plan when you get to Congress and presumably it'll be a Republican House? It's looking like slightly more likely it's going to be a Republican Senate, but you're still going to have to deal with Joe Biden for a couple of years. Uh, what do you want to do? We have got to make sure that we put bills in front of President Biden that's going to force him to say, do we do I really not care about the safety of America? Do I really not care about what's happening at the border? Do I really not care about inflation? 
Do I really not care about our supply chain issues? Do I really want to continue this war on domestic energy? We have got to continue to put pressure on him to tell the American people that he doesn't care about making America a better place for every citizen. That's exactly what we're going to do. You bring, you bring up a very good, very good point, though. Look, we are stuck with Joe Biden for the next two years, no matter what. And so it's also our job to make sure that we do what the federal government is supposed to do, and that's keep our citizens safe. That means securing the border. That means refunding the police. That means stopping all this negative rhetoric around policing in America and realizing that these people get up every single day to keep us safe and to protect us, protect our homes, and to protect our families. We have got to be the party that represents that. And if we have the House and, God willing, we have the Senate, it's going to be very difficult for Joe Biden to continue to say no to all these things when we are realizing that, you know what? We have got to do a 180. We've got to get our country back. And that means you have to work with Republicans to get that done. We've got to put the pressure on him so that he understands that. Uh, I am more curious to see whether or not your focus in the Congress, Republican Congress, will be legislation, will be investigations. Uh, It'll probably be both to some degree. But what are you most excited about? Legislating. Uh, Let's be honest. We are in trouble. This country is in peril. We have had a precipitous fall off in just two years. We have got to do right by the American people. Investigations are necessary. We absolutely have to do it. And I can think of a laundry list of people that should that should be investigated. But right now, the American people need immediate help. And we do that by legislating. We do that with good conservative policies. Uh, let me ask you a little bit about something you did on uh, Twitter, which was really amusing to us, which was you called out Sonny Hostin or Hostin. I, I like to say Hostin because she yeah. hosts a show. It's a, and uh, she suggested that uh, white suburban women are like cockroaches. I mean, the, the view is trying to be provocative and trying to get attention from people like me on talk radio. And I'm generally happy to oblige. Uh, but uh, what was your reaction to this comment? And uh, why do you think it's so toxic to speak this way? My reaction to that was how pompous and how condescending is the far left when it comes to them, their inability to understand what everyday Americans are going through every single day. Who is she to tell somebody else what's in their own best interest? That's just how they think. The assumption is this. If you're a woman, you have to vote and think a certain way. If you're a black man, you have to vote and think a certain way. As if we don't know what's in our own best interest, as if we have not lived in our own skin, in our own bodies, in our own communities, ourselves. I don't need her telling me what's best for me and my family. I could do that just fine. And as long as they continue this kind of rhetoric, they tend to tell us exactly who they are and how they believe. The biggest difference between a liberal and a conservative is a liberal thinks that the government can fix everything. And a conservative believes that the power is within the individual citizen to create their own best outcomes. That's the difference. What Sonny did on TV just showed you, shows you how all liberals think, and that's why, sir, they are the absolute worst. Because they think they know what's best for everybody. What they don't realize is that the power is within the individual, not the government, and especially not some liberal telling me how I'm supposed to live my own life, how I'm supposed to vote, and how I'm supposed to raise my own family. It does seem like that is a pattern here that's emerging towards the end of this election cycle as how the establishment left is so condescending to people. And it is, I think, given a, a got a lot of more populist conservatives uh, out of bed, so to speak, and saying, OK, th- this is enough of this. Uh, we're going to fight for it. 
And it's very exciting to witness it because it just seems like the effortless diversity of the Republican candidates, the fact there's so many veterans running, uh, the fact that there are people who are not tuning in to, you know, cable news as much in uh, in all these smug, pompous cable news hosts getting fired. Uh, it just does feel like stars are aligning in a major way. So uh, let's talk about you get to Washington. Give me the top three things you want to do. So I think I talked about this just very briefly, but energy is my top thing. All 800,000 people that will live in my district are in some way tangentially related to the oil and gas and energy industry. That is my absolute top priority. And as the energy congressman of the world, I'm trying to get on energy and commerce as a freshman. It's a pretty, pretty heavy lift, but that's my top priority because that's what I must do for my district. Secondly, for me, safety. What I, we're seeing down here in the greater Houston area and in, in every major city, L.A., uh, Chicago, Atlanta, New York, we have seen crime ravage our communities. We have got to do something about that. And, of course, last but cer- certainly not least, if I have three, it's the border. This is not a partisan issue. This should not, I'm sorry, it shouldn't be a partisan issue. Unfortunately, it is. The world is laughing at us. And as somebody that has spent time overseas, I was a diplomatic liaison officer in Saudi Arabia. I served in Iraq. As somebody that has been all over the world, we are the laughing stock in terms of what's happening at our border. It's an absolute joke to think that we've had over four and a half million people that we know of enter our country illegally in the last two years. We have no idea who they are. That is embarrassing. This has absolutely got to stop. And it's not about, you know, hating brown people or being xenophobic. This is about enforcing American laws and enforcing our Constitution. Those are my top three, sir. Wonderful. Wesley Hunt, Republican nominee for Congress in Texas. And probably uh, this time tomorrow will be, or I guess this time on Wednesday will be a congressman-elect. WesleyforTexas.com if you want to support. Uh, It's really great to meet you. And thanks for spending time with us this morning. Which is all mine. Thank you. God bless you. Y'all have a great day. Thank you. I got American parts. I got American faith. That's today's broadcast. Thanks so much to our wonderful producers, Zach Jones and Greg Eben, Robert Marlowe, Healthy Pick Topics. And thanks to all of you telling people about the show. And we'll talk to you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Thank you.